0: Father in heaven, you're the best. We love you. We love getting to be here. We love that you've spoken to us. We love your son. We're grateful for your spirit. And we pray that as we listen now, that you would speak to each one of us, open the eyes of our hearts, give us ears to hear, so that we can see your glory and the wonder of what you have done for us and will do for us in Christ. To so help us, we pray, for the sake of your name. Amen. So, it matters who's in charge. And at risk of offending a number of people, I'm going to go out on a limb and tell a story that my friend told me. He would be self-identified as working class. You'll understand why that's relevant in a minute. And he was telling me that apparently, when you are on the plane, flying, the voice that you'll hear that comes from the cockpit, it's going to be southern, posh or middle class. This is apparently what he said, right? This is the voice that you'll hear. And he said, how many times have you heard a northerner or the working class in the cockpit over the the speaker's? And his point was, it's like a subtle little thing, we don't even realise it, but as soon as we hear that, um, that voice, we feel slightly more at ease, and we don't even realise that that's the case. On a more serious uh, example, is, uh, that illustrates that it matters who's in charge, we might think about the uh, election that's coming up. You might think about the person that we are uh, going to vote for. Presumably, we would want somebody who had knowledge, right? We want somebody who knows their stuff. We want an intelligent person. Uh, we want somebody with character, somebody who's got integrity, somebody who follows through with the things that they say. We want somebody who has a good ethic. We want them to be somebody that um, stands for what is good and what is Right? And we want somebody who's wise. We don't want somebody who's a fool, who's gonna say things inappropriately at the wrong time. We want wise people who are leading the country. And lastly, we'd want somebody with a heart, wouldn't we? Somebody with compassion, somebody who cared about the welfare of people. So even here in this uh, national election, we can see how important it is and what difference it makes when a certain person is in charge. The point is, it matters who's in charge. And that is what this psalm is about. This psalm is about who's in charge. And we see that in the very first three words. As a whole, the psalm is about who's in charge And why that's a cause for rejoicing. Those first three words just kind of hang there. That's the first statement. The Lord reigns. That's the headline idea of the whole psalm. And then as we go through the psalm, we we see three causes. We see three uh, calls, rather, for rejoicing. Just look with me so that you can see it as well. It's there in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. We see it again then in verse 8. Zion hears and rejoices. And we see it lastly in verse 12. That's how the psalm ends. Rejoice in the Lord. So the big idea is the Lord reigns. This is cause for rejoicing. So let's start with the Lord reigning. Just note there that the word is written in capitals. And that means that it's a particular God. Notice that it doesn't just say generically God reigns. It says the Lord reigns. So what that means is it means that there's a particular God amongst the gods. And this God reigns. You see there in verse... 9, where it says, For you, Lord, are the Most High over all the earth, you are exalted above all gods. (coughs) It's not that the psalmist thinks that these uh, gods are actually real, by mentioning them. He's speaking as though they are real, because people conceive of them as real, in order to show that the Lord is Most High and He's the one worthy of our allegiance. Because these other gods are things, beings, objects to which people trust, look to, give their allegiance to. And so when there it says that the Lord reigns, for us, it means that Father, Son and Spirit reign. That's where the scriptures are going to go. That's who reigns. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit He rules. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Philippians 2 says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus above every name that can be named. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. He seated him at his right hand. Jesus Christ rules far above every other name. That's who reigns. And that means that other things ultimately don't reign. Sin doesn't reign. Death doesn't reign. Can you imagine if this election was final? Can you imagine if this election was it? And whoever was appointed ruled the whole world forever? I think Catherine Weston just melted. (laughs) But we're in a relatively stable nation, right? Let's be honest. Geographically, historically, pretty good place to live. Imagine how much more serious that question would be for numerous countries throughout the world, if their current government was fixed in place, had full and final rule forever. Imagine if what all we saw in this present life was the ceiling and there was nothing above and beyond that. None of those things reign. The Lord reigns. And that's cause for rejoicing. And so then where the psalm goes is the psalm goes and takes us on a journey with a picture of this king. And so we can see why it's cause for rejoicing. So a picture of this king is... At first, a surprise... Look at the first thing that he says here in verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. The Lord is king. We're kind of thinking about him on his throne. And the first image we get is clouds and thick darkness surround him. You can imagine yourself I remember seeing this where where I'm from in Australia, which is on the east coast, about halfway up, and we get heavy thunderstorms. And standing at the end of our street, and in summer, you can see the thunderstorms coming. And you can see, sometimes, the sheet of rain coming towards you. And you look ahead, you might have blue sky here, and right in front of you, and it's kind of like it's coming down the road at you, is just thick black and it's just rumbling ahead. And then the sheet of rain comes. (laughs) But when you're looking into that, that's the picture here. You're looking into a very, very big, thick, dark storm. This is the image we're given. And the Lord is in there. And the idea is, you're meant to feel much smaller than that thing you're meant to feel that that thing has got power that i don't have i'm at the mercy of that thing and the deep darkness speaks of mystery beyond there he's in there he's surrounded by deep darkness this might seem like an unsettling thing. And at one level, it should be. But look what the next line is. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's critical. Right? If all we're left with was clouds and thick darkness surround him, we're left with a picture of, whoa, that thing could be scary. But it's critical that we lay for the foundation of our lives that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's what we're shown here. That's what the character of the Lord is like. They are the foundation of his throne. He's on the throne. His whole throne, his whole rule, everything about his rule is built upon righteousness and justice. Which means that he never makes a wrong decision. He never has and he never will. Are we concerned about His government of the world, as we currently see it? Let's not forget these two things. There is mystery in God. He is bigger than we are. He's surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. But don't forget that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. He always does what is right. That is the God of the Bible. Are we concerned about Jesus' teaching on hell? Take this psalm, if those fears wash over you, and grab hold of it. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There's there's going to be nobody in hell that doesn't deserve to be there. All of his decisions are right. He's never going to make a mistake. On the final day, everybody's going to say, just and righteous and good are you. All your judgments are perfect, Lord. I take us there because that's one of the ways that this gets applied in our lives. Because too often we look up and we question God's justice and his righteousness. Or too often we look up and we see a God that is way too small. Are we concerned that this is just a matter of words, righteousness and justice being the foundation of his throne? then let's look to the cross. That's what the cross is for. Right there, in history, the way that God has acted. Is he concerned about justice? Absolutely. Jesus is so concerned about justice that he's willing to voluntarily take himself to the cross to bear the punishment that is rightfully ours. That is how much he's concerned about justice. Are we concerned about his love and his goodness? Look to the cross. Jesus is so committed to loving his people that he's willing to go to the cross and bear the punishment and the shame of that death in love. Are we concerned that these are just words, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne? Then look to the cross. What the psalmist wants to do then, in order to give us the right picture of the Lord, as we understand why that statement at the beginning just hangs there and deserves meditation, the Lord reigns is because then he takes us out to see that this God is the creator of the universe. Now, it's not assumed. That's not assumed, right? Sometimes we might just think of God and we think, okay, we don't kind of understand what the idea about God is, God's the creator. But in this context, you've got regional deities, you've got deities over... That rule over this particular part of the land, you've got deities that rule over this particular part of the land, you've got gods that are um, kind of type, they rule over a specific sphere, so you've got God of the weather, you've got God of fertility. And so the psalmist has to say, "No, no, 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 this God, the God of Israel, the God that's acting, the God that has chosen Abraham, the God that's delivered Israel out of Egypt, the God that's been with them, the God that's given them these commandments. That God is the creator of the universe. Look at verse 4, he says, his lightning lights up the world. It's his lightning. The mountains... The immovable mountains melt like wax before him. The whole space of creation is under the sway of his command. And just as you might uh, look at an earthly king, you might look at his palace, you might look at his throne, and you might see a beautiful palace and a beautiful throne, and you might say, beautiful... Wonderful. What a king. Look at the splendour. Look at the order of his servants. Look at the government that he has around him. The psalmist says, in verse 6, if you want to do that with the God of the Bible, you need to go outside, like Andrew is saying, and look up to the heavens, and look at the stars... Vast, weighty, immeasurable, and out there you will see that they display his righteousness. Go out there and look at the stars and say, Ah, the Lord. Wow. Quite ordered, quite powerful. Quite beautiful. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all people see his glory. So, when we wonder about his rule, don't forget. Look at the size of him, look at the sphere, look at the space of his rule. That's the God of the Bible the universe is the Lord's. That's a picture of this king. And that's cause for rejoicing. But it's not immediately and not automatically favorable. It's not automatically a cause for rejoicing. Because It also means trouble for his enemies. We've skipped over it in verse 3, and we're going to see it there again in verse 7. In verse 3, it says, A fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. And in verse 7, it says, All who worship images are put to shame, those who boast in idols. Worship him, all you gods. You see, the thing is, when this king rules and when his sphere is everything, there's no space which is neutral. So nowhere where we are is outside of his rule. Which means that allegiance to him isn't optional. It's not a personal preference for some and not for others. He lays claim on absolutely everybody and absolutely everything. And with the imagery that we're given here, the setting that we have, we have the Lord is a king, he's in his kingdom, we're all in his kingdom, and then foes are brought in. And the picture here is these are enemies, These are enemies of the king, they're people who aren't submitted to his rule. They're people who don't pledge allegiance to him. And so the Lord is presented here, not just as a king, but as a warrior king as well. What does this mean practically and what does it mean right now for us? Well, practically, it means submission to Jesus... The Lord currently reigns and submission to Jesus is the way to submit to the Lord. Jesus says to Jews, actually, because then there's the idea, you know, well, yes, I do submit to God and what about all these other religions that submit to God? Well, that's the point at the beginning. No, 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 it's it's a specific God. They are so-called gods. There is one God. And Jesus can say, if God were your father, you would love me. That's how Jesus presents himself in John. It's like a litmus test. You say, you claim that you love God. You claim that you're concerned about God's will. You claim that you follow God. If that were the case, then you would love me, follow me, submit to my will, serve me, worship me. Because I am... God incarnate. And so that's practically what it looks like now. Those who uh, don't pledge allegiance, are completely committed to the rule of Jesus, are the enemies of the Lord, who's the creator of all. And if there's no allegiance, that's a very dangerous place to be. (coughs) And that's what it says right here. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Jesus will come back and he will destroy his enemies. That's what he'll do. He will rid his kingdom of all forms of evil and rebellion. And he'll throw them out, outside of his kingdom, into outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. But the thing is, when I first started this point, number three, trouble for enemies, I said, it's not automatically favourable. And I said that on purpose. Because it can be. And that's crucially important. And that's why Jesus came twice. Because if the good news was only that Jesus was Lord... That wouldn't be good news for rebels. The news is actually that he is Saviour and Lord. And so he came the first time to give his life as a ransom, to die in the place of rebellious sinners, to bear the punishment for our sins, and to make us right with God to give us his spirit, to change our hearts. And so we are no longer rebels, but we're citizens of his kingdom. Forgiven, all of our rebellion paid for, all of the punishment put on Jesus. So he came the first time to make enemies his friends. And that's possible for anybody here if they don't currently trust in Jesus if you're not currently submitted to his rule, that's possible for you. You lay down your crown. You say, I've been a rebel. I've not been submitted to your will. I'm not living with you as the king of my life. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus, for me. Taking my sin, bearing my punishment, I give you my crown. I live for you. That's a free gift. That's an offer. That's something that Jesus did and he offers to us. And Jesus says, come into my kingdom. Dine with me forever. Join this kingdom that lasts forever. And that's why in verse 1 it can say this, it hints there in verse 1 at this wider rejoicing. The Lord reigns let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. So, come on. Receive Jesus so that the Lord reigning means you can be glad and so that you can rejoice. This goes beyond just Israel. It's for all people. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go into all the world and make disciples. It's not for a particular slice of the world. This is for everybody. So if it's trouble for enemies, it's joy for Zion. So you see there in verse 8, Zion hears, they hear that the Lord reigns and they rejoice. And the villages of Judah are glad. What it means is that when Zion hears that the Lord reigns, they say, ah, this is good news for us. Who is Zion? Zion is the people of God. It's speaking about the people of God. And it's the people of God who have entered into a covenant with this Lord. For them, they probably mark themselves out as the Israelites, specifically. But as the Bible progresses, we see that Zion is for all who have entered that covenant that God has made with the world through Jesus. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so when he gives the cup and he gives the bread and he breaks them, he said, this is is my body, this is my blood, this is the covenant that you can enter into with the Lord. It's a covenant in which the penalty for sin has been paid, hence the bloodshed and the broken body. It's a covenant in which the obligations of righteousness have been fulfilled by Jesus. He's the one who has done God's law perfectly. And he offers this covenant, this relationship, to the world freely. And that is Zion. Zion are those people who have put their faith in Jesus, who have entered into that covenant, a covenant of peace. They've made peace with the Lord. And the Lord then is their God and he fights for them. And he delivers them from all their enemies. Look there in verse 10. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Those who have entered into a covenant with the Lord have the Lord as their God, and he fights for them. He rescues them from sin, he rescues them from the devil, he rescues them from death. And I think we can say he rescues them from people. I think we can add that in. And I think there will be numerous places in history where they will say, When. So I'm thinking of Revelation right now. And the people in Revelation are saying, When will this end? When will the oppression of your people, Lord, end? When will the pain that's inflicted upon your people end? And that day will come when the Lord's people will be rescued from people who hate them. But we can say, I think, all of those things, that the Lord rescues his people. So it's good news for Zion, rejoice, because the Lord is your God. But lastly... There's one more thing. <clears throat> and it's in verse 11. And it's a hint of what is perhaps we feel as a tension, even as we've listened so far in the sermon or as we've read the psalm, of the question of, okay, if the Lord reigns, how come everything is not quite so great? Look what it says in verse 11: it says, Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. And if you look down there, you've got a little A next to shines, which means you need to look down at the footnote and see what it says there. One Hebrew manuscript. Yes? And ancient versions. That's ancient translations. Okay? So what it's saying there in that little footnote, in, in, with a little A, Is it saying that the translation that they've put in is one Hebrew manuscript, that's what it reads. That's how it's written. And other translations also have that. Yes? But then you see there's a little semicolon and then it has most Hebrew manuscripts. So that's saying... We've gone for the one Hebrew manuscript and the other translations which say this, but just so you know, uh, most Hebrew manuscripts go with, uh, translate, light is sown. Okay? And what you have is you actually have light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright of heart. And if you've got an ESV Bible in front of you, that's what you will have just read and thought, ah, that's what's going on. I'm going to go with light is sown for the righteous. Because I think it also makes better sense of the second line with the parallel and joy for the upright of heart. Because light is sown and joy is sown. Light shines, joy shines. It works for light, but I don't think it works for sown, uh, for, jo- for joy and here's why i think it's put this way what happens when you sow seed goes into the ground and what can you and then what happens when you go and look for the plant after you've just sown the seed where is it you can't see it can you you can't see it but the thing is it's sown it's in the ground and it's going to come up. So the point is, it's a word of hope. Light is sown for the righteous and joy is sown for the upright in heart. I mean that those things are put in the ground and there's a period of waiting and then they come up and they shine. And that, I think, is the, the hint in the psalm that, that explains that sense of okay well, the Lord reigns but what about all these problems that you're talking about? So why is death seemingly still reigning when you said earlier that death isn't reigning? Why is it that evil s- still seems to be reigning when you said that the Lord reigns and he's full of righteousness and justice? And I think here we have, the little glit, we have the little explanation, the little window in that shows us light is sown for the righteous. It's in the ground, it's a word of hope and it's, a, it's going to spring up. And I think that's what we see with Jesus coming out of the tomb. It's like light... Life. Light is about joy. Light is about life. Light is about peace. Light is about hope. Light is everything opposite to the darkness. Light is everything opposite to the pain. Light is everything opposite to the suffering. Light and joy. It's everything opposite to the sadness. And when Jesus goes into the tomb, light is sown. And when he comes out of the tomb... It's, he comes out of the ground and light has sprung up. Light has dawned. And so we can say of Jesus, and the Gospel writers do say this, light has dawned. When Jesus arrives on the scene, I think there's, light, there's levels of it. When he arrives, light's come. When he comes out of the ground, there's a, a new level of light has come. Death has been defeated at a new level. He's going to come again. And that will be another whole new level of light and joy for the people of God. So light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Where does he conclude? Verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous. The righteous are those not who, righteous in their own strength, have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. Rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let me pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. We thank you and praise you that you do reign, even though we don't see it. Thank you that it's good that you reign. Father, we pray that when trials come, we pray that when things are hard, we pray that when we don't see that, we would remember and never forget that you are bigger than we can imagine. And that the foundation of your throne is righteousness and justice. That you are a good God fundamentally and you always do what's right. Please help us to trust in you, to trust your word and to wait for the return of Jesus. When the whole world will be filled with light and we will shine like the sun in your presence, in your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.